Hello, Chris Wilmore here, the executive audio engineer and sometimes host of the Choral Project's No Baton Needed podcast. In this episode, we're honored to welcome singer, composer, educator, conductor, researcher, and professor of voice at Auburn University's Department of Music, Dr. Rosephany Powell. Take it away, Daniel. Well, hello. Uh, we are honored to have Dr. Rosephany Powell with us. Um, Dr. Powell, you are an accomplished singer, composer, educator, conductor, researcher, and voice professor. And the Choral Project and I know you specifically as a composer because we've done a couple of your pieces, of course, the rousing The Word Was God, as well as your gorgeous piece, Dorita, many, many times. And I've conducted it with festival choirs, and I, I, I can never get enough of those. So I'd love to start the conversation with Sarita. would love to know what inspired it. That's a great question. I, I think the inspiration came from the fact that when my husband and I were teaching at Philander Smith College in Little Rock, Arkansas, we were preparing to do a CD. And this was important because the choir served as an ambassador for the college itself. And so as we're getting ready to do this CD and we're reaching out to different publishers to include their octavos, their songs on our recording, you know, we found that we couldn't afford the licensing because the purpose of the recording was for scholarship money for the students who would be coming to the college. And so, you know, my husband and I had this great idea that I should compose works for these CDs that we would do. And uh, that's how the word was God came forth as a matter of fact. And so with Sorida, we were trying to have more African influenced uh, works in addition to the spirituals and uh, the anthems that we were doing. And I just went looking through some of my collections of African songs. And as soon as I saw Sorida and saw it as this wonderful greeting that embraces people, not only of Africa, but the entire world. And it's a children's game and song, as a matter of fact. And so it goes, sorry, da, ri, da, ri, da, ri, da, ri, da. Well, that's just playing around in my head. And so as I start to play around with those words, the song starts to develop and then we teach it to the students and they love it. And so it just kind of grew out of a need for songs for recording. And as well, you know, the choir, which was at a school that was predominantly African-American, well, now we're relating to the homeland, and so it met the needs, a number of needs for the group. magnificent piece. Thank you. And everybody should really do that piece or at least hear that piece. I think about when you were talking about the global welcome and, you know, not just for people from one culture, but truly a global community. I can hear it playing in my head. Wave to your brother, wave to your sister. And it just gets chills. It's just so beautiful. And it's magnificently set. So in your compositions, your catalog has some real heft to it. And I'm wondering if you have a favorite piece or a top three pieces that you've written. You know, I always say that my favorite piece is the one that I'm composing or it's the one I'm conducting, you know, with an all state or another group. But I think if I had to pick 
three favorites. I think one would be To Sit and Dream, which is a work that I composed on poetry by Langston Hughes, the poem To You. I think also would be Still I Rise, a song that's become like a women's anthem for many women's choirs because it addresses the struggles of the woman, but from a point of strength. And then I guess a third one would be, you know, it would be difficult for me to pick a third one, but perhaps I would say that would be the word was God because that was the first one that I had published. And it really is the work on which my career has been built, the success of that first work. It's it's fantastic piece. I I first heard that song at an American Choral Directors Association National Convention. The Al McNeil Jubilee Singers sang it, and it, they opened their concert with it, and I was just floored, like, holy, oh my goodness, this is magnificent, and just genius. The whole canonic layering and how every time you think like, okay, well that's that's about as far as she could take the layer. Oh, she did it again. Oh, she did it again. It's just magnificent. Thank you. Did you ever see yourself in a profession that wasn't related to music, or did you always know that this was your trajectory? When I was in high school, I think I thought of three particular areas. One would be music, and then the second would be English, because my mom being an English teacher, and I've always been a lover of words. And so being an English teacher was a second thought I had, and then a counselor. It was a, another desire because I enjoy hearing people's stories. And then I, I come from a family of service where part of one's calling in life is to serve others. And so I feel like regardless, I think music is the means by which the other parts of my temperament and personality and interests are played out. So as a composer, I'm working with words. And as a voice teacher, a conductor, clinician, I'm there to serve people. So it's almost like music has opened up a world of many professions. <laughs> you know, it's the means by which I get to fulfill what I believe I was created to do. I completely understand that. And it is interesting that all of the things you were drawn to all have to do with connection and communication and 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 music is this wonderful unifier that seems to always appear it can always land in the center of a Venn diagram in some way you know it's just beautiful so and i i love that you talked about service because i really do think that artists are servants to life and you know just humanity and just edifying that and reminding us of you know how we're composed so that that's really beautiful thank you in addition to all these hats, I mean, you're such a trailblazer in our industry. One of the hats you wear is as a researcher who focuses on the art of the spiritual. So I'd love to have you talk a little bit with our listeners about what defines a spiritual as being a spiritual 
And why is that one of your focuses as a researcher and a composer? Well, first of all, being African-American, it starts there with me. And then secondly, I'm from the state of Alabama. So coming to Auburn was full circle for me. And I grew up in a small town off of a major highway and grew up in a very small little Methodist church where, and it was so small that my father was like the superintendent. My uncle was the Sunday school leader. My mother taught a class. Uh, my grandmother was the song leader. So our thing was if nobody else showed up, we had church because it was me, my brothers, my father, my uncle, you know, <laughs> it was a very small family church. But my grandmother, who lived with us at times, her profession was as a housekeeper and cook for a white family that lived a few miles down the road. So her grandparents, I, I can't remember if his great or grandparents were slaves. And then she was in during the civil rights time. And even when I was growing up, she was still a maid and a cook. And what she did when she cleaned and she cooked, she sang and hummed spirituals. And then when she went to church, she taught the spiritual. So I grew up in an environment of the African-American spiritual being a part of everyday life, in addition to R&B, in addition to jazz and all the other flavors that show up in my songs. So when I first started to compose, I was arranging spirituals because, you know, you don't have to worry about copyright. And because that was a part of my language, uh, my musical language, the spiritual for me was more than a classical song that was performed by choirs. It was a part of my heritage and a part of my musical vocabulary. So when we talk about a spiritual, which people do tend to confuse with an African-American gospel song, we're talking about a folk song, which many people don't know, but uh, many ethnomusicologists consider the African-American spiritual as the first true American folk song that was birthed here in America because the other folk songs were coming from England. They were coming from, you know, whether it's the Netherlands or France, they were coming from other countries as people came to this nation. But the African-American spiritual was birthed right here. So it's not just an African-American song. It is an American song. And the spiritual, which began on the plantations, were brought to the concert world through the Fisk Jubilee singers. And they were also brought by Harry T. Burley, who was an American singer, African-American singer and composer. However, he and other arrangers of spirituals, including, you know, Hall Johnson, William Dawson and others, they wanted their classical works to be published, their symphonies, their art songs. But they were not being allowed to publish those works. However, because of the uh, Fisk Jubilee singers performing all around the world and these songs being embraced by so many, the spiritual was what they were being given permission to have published. So these songs, when you talk about a spiritual, you're talking about a work that is not an original work that has a composer. It's normally going to have an arranger. Additionally, if you follow the tradition, these are songs that are meant to be performed exactly as they are arranged on the musical page. They were originally also a cappella, 
and they did not include clapping or snapping the fingers. They were supposed to be the elevated African-American music in the classical genre. And that is normally contrasted with the gospel song, which is a composed song that originated in the 1950s and began as part of the African-American church and is more of what we consider a popular music that we now have composed as concert gospel songs by composers such as myself. Well, these songs are normally going to be calling for instrumentation in addition to the piano, such as the organ and synthesized music, drum set, tambourine. They were meant to be performed with freedom, improvisation. And that's how you will contrast or distinguish the gospel song. And, and so, for instance, with the gospel song, you have the freedom to do what we call runs that are not on the page because that freedom and improvisation is part of that style. And it's meant to be sung with more of a popular vocal production, wherein the spiritual is meant to be sung with a classical vocal production. Have I given more information than you were asking for. No, this is great. Okay. It's I I think that there are a lot of people who have heard spirituals in concert form but don't necessarily have a place of how it fits into the long arc of musical legacies around the world and 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 our American language too. It's it so this that's wonderful. And you know, I would like to add to that that for instance, I've arranged spirituals such as sometimes I feel like a motherless child wade in the water and I want to be ready, which was my first spiritual published. And that was through Rodney Eichenberger, who heard the Florida State uh, Gospel Choir perform that particular arrangement. Then I have my gospel songs such as He is Marvelous and Hallelujah from the Cry of Jeremiah. And I have a work called the Gospel Trinity. All of those would be gospel songs. Then I have the word was God, which is more of an anthem or motet, wait on the Lord. And a lot of times people will call all of those works spirituals. But there are three different styles of music. And if one understands them, it is difficult to confuse them because of how they're performed and how they're composed or arranged. But if you don't understand the styles and you just because I'm black, you go and call them all spirituals, then I think there it will be great confusion you know, with programming those. You know, that makes wonderful sense. I think it is easy for a person to just lump everything I mean, well, you live in such a binary world these days, too, where, you know, it's ones and zeros on and off and things like that. So, yeah, it, that, that's terrific. Do you have a favorite spiritual? Is there are there a few that are go to's for you uh, of ones that I've arranged or period either? You know, one that I've arranged that is really one that's very special to me is sometimes I feel like a motherless child. And that one's really special to me because that's a spiritual that was known pretty much on every plantation, regardless of the state or, you know, part of the country where that plantation existed. And that was really special to me because every slave could relate to sometimes I feel like a motherless child because every slave had either been sold away from a plantation or the mother had been sold away or the children had been sold away from the mother or the father or the siblings. And so the plantation was known. And that's why so often you hear blacks call each other brother and sister. Well, on the plantation, whatever mature woman 
that was on that plantation looked out for the kids of the mother that was sold away. And that mother became my mother if my mother was sold away. And so everybody on the plantation was family. And so sometimes I feel like a motherless child. The pain of that song, because the, the slave wasn't given permission to experience pain because we were no different from chattel or cattle. We were not supposed to feel pain. Well, the song was the means by which we expressed pain. So sometimes I feel like a motherless child whether you had been beaten or whether someone had been sold away or whether you had experienced some sort of loss. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child was the way to tell the rest of the plantation and slaves that you were sad. I want you to hear you could not cry. So the singing of that song embraced everybody or invited everybody into your pain. I just think that that is so powerful that a song had the power to tell everybody this is a bad day for me because I can't express that out in the field. I can sing this song. I can rock a baby to sleep and the master can come in the house and he will not know I am mourning and grieving someone that I've lost through this beautiful song. Balm and Gilead is another one, you know, because that was the one that was supposed to bring healing to everybody emotionally through the singing of that song. It was also a song of hope. So, but there are just numerous ones of them that I can connect to. And I've, I've written a set of songs for solo voice uh, during 2020. And they're all based on spirituals, based on what I observed or experienced through COVID-19. I composed a song called Healing and it's based on there was a bomb in Gilead. I composed a song uh, called uh, Dying, and it's based on the spiritual, I want to die easy when I die. And as I watched George Floyd, that's the song that came to my mind. And so I've composed this art song, and I don't call it based on the title of the spiritual. I call it on what I saw, because I want everybody to sing these songs without inhibition, regardless of what race they are. The things that happened in 2020, I think the spiritual has a message for all of those things. Is this a, a solo, like a, a song cycle for a soloist? It is. It's a song cycle and it's called Then, Here and Now. And, you know, there right now when we're talking about, you know, misappropriation, of, as we're talking about uh, adopting the objects and things and experiences of one race by the majority people of another race, a lot of people struggle with singing African-American spirituals, you know, because of the racial climate. But I feel that those songs, in order to be preserved and in order for people to understand the pain of the African-American, I feel that more people need to sing them. And you, you do have to be careful about which ones you choose to sing. But I wanted to compose these as art songs because I want everybody to be able to sing about what I felt when I saw people dying from COVID-19. A bombing Gilead, Gilead was, the, was the song that I sang. And when I watched George Floyd dying, that song, I want to die easy when I die. That old song then was here and now 
when I had no words, when I was emotionally exhausted, I just hummed like my grandmother, that's spiritual. I don't think anybody wants to die that hard. And then that night and the next day when the protests came and they were burning down things, the song I composed entitled Protest was Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls literally were tumbling down. And then the, the fourth song is called Oppression, Go Down Moses. One of the reasons so many things happened is the feeling of oppression. But that oppression is not just for African-Americans. There are people protesting and feeling oppressed around the world. There are people dying from cancer in addition to COVID-19. So I compose these words to say everybody has a message that they can share through these songs. And so I just used excerpts from those songs rather than the entire spiritual such that people know you've got someone struggling with cancer. You can sing. There is a bomb in Gilead. You've been abused. You've experienced domestic abuse. You've been bullied. You can sing about being oppressed. Sex trafficking. These songs relate to people regardless of their background. And that's what I compose these songs to share my experience and say, if you've had any of these experiences, these songs are for you. That sounds like an incredible set of pieces. I, I hope I'm honored to see them and hear them someday. That's just fantastic. And it's one of the questions I had for you was what, what has been your response to COVID and Black Lives Matter and the horrible things that have been happening with people like George Floyd's, but you just moved right into that just effortlessly. Um, uh, you made me very unmoved. Uh, <clears throat> let's go back to the very beginning of your life. Your love of singing started in high school. So I understand you sang in a group with three girlfriends. Um, so I'm curious to know what you sang with them and are you still in touch with them? Well, you know, we started off singing in choir together. And then as the choir director would be working with other singers or working on other parts or whatever, we just found ourselves harmonizing beyond whatever was in the song. Then we would be in the cafeteria. Then we would be in the gym. And eventually the choir director said to us, you know, you all might want to form a group rather than sit around annoying everybody. <laughs> it would drive the people in choir nuts to see all these parts we start adding, you know. And so we then formed a group and it was a gospel singing group because, you know, again, little small town, everything was focused on church. And so we the choir director found a friend of hers who had played with Al Green in Memphis. He had moved recently back to our area and uh, he started playing with us. We formed a group and then with that group, I started arranging songs. And so it just continued to develop from, again, a need. We ended up doing a recording. And again, it was just working with that group is what developed, I think, my ear for arranging and then moving with composition. It just started from, you know, us being annoying singers sitting around having fun <laughs> together. I love hearing about stories like that. When I was a kid and we had to do general classroom music at the elementary level, 
Well, my family was all very musical. So I have a twin and an older sister and an eldest brother. And when we would be on road trips, we would all just sing in very Von Trapp kind of, you know, make up desk camps and things like that. Well, in general music, I would make up my own harmonies. And the other students that weren't musicians, they'd get really, really angry with me. And I was like, why are you getting so upset? <laughs> but it's wonderful that that grew into this other project. Do you still keep in touch with any of them? That was the part I had forgotten. You know, through Facebook, everybody is able to keep in contact. And we thought from time to time about doing a reunion, but we all live in different cities and all have families. So being able to come together and spend that time learning parts and making things come together. It just has not happened. Maybe you'll be able to use some virtual technology. I mean, since that seems to be how everybody's surviving this these days. Are you doing virtual choir projects with any of the groups at Auburn? Yes. Our fall concert was virtual. And I don't know if, if we will be virtual for our concert this semester, but we are meeting on campus again in larger rooms spread out. But we are thinking about, we will probably do an outdoor performance, but I think we had a great experience in our virtual performance prior to Christmas. It's a very different way to make music and it's powerful in its own way, but it also, I think is making a lot of people feel extremely grateful for what they had and looking forward to that coming back because there really isn't anything quite like the interconnectivity of live bodies together in a shared experience. It's very powerful. How did you find your way to becoming a music educator and a conductor? Because you obviously have had music, you know, in your, your soul and your blood. Well, again, I think it's all intertwined. You know, my parents used to always say your gifts will make way for you. So Studying first, you know, my degrees, my first degree was in music education, and then my master's and doctoral degrees are both in vocal performance and pedagogy. And, you know, being a lyric soprano, I was pretty much told, hey, you're going to have to find something else to do. First of all, sopranos are a dime a dozen, and then you're a lyric soprano, so going to have to find something else to be your career as it relates to performing. Well, again, with the service, I love teaching voice. And so that was natural for me to look for a position teaching voice. And then when I was composing and would do interviews and talks, people would say, hey, would you mind either doing a master class or coming and working with my choir? And after working with choirs, I would then get invitations to conduct an all state. And I would tell people on the front end, you know, I didn't study conducting. As a matter of fact, the first invitations I received, I said, oh, no, because I knew how critical my students were when they worked with conductors of things that, you know, the conductor wasn't clear about. They would come back after a festival and would be talking about the conductor. So I was like, there is no way, you know, without me having really studied conducting and taking a conducting course in undergraduate being about the extent of my work. Well, there were a couple of people who invited me and, you know, my husband just said, you know, Rosephany, they want what you're going to give to the students. It's not about all you do with waving your hands. Evidently, they see you have something to give to the students. 
And so the first time I did it, it went really well. You know, the students did not boo me uh, out of <laughs> the rehearsals and we were able to make beautiful music together. And so what I was able to bring to a choir is my understanding of how to get the voice to sing well. So that worked well for me. And then being a composer, my understanding of what our real job is, and that is to share a message with an audience. So I generally will approach working with a choir from what do we have to say? We're not just going to sing notes well and get the dynamics and the rhythms. In the end, if we don't move that audience, we have not served them. So my job is first to serve the choir. Then if the choir gets it, the choir then serves the audience and the audience leaves differently than when they arrived. And I tell my choirs that is our goal. And if, if we're singing a sad song and somebody doesn't get moved, we have not done our job and we failed the poet and the composer. So now the composition opened the door for me to work with choirs, which then opened the door for me to be able to conduct. But all of that started with me singing in choirs. It's wonderful. You have all these little touchstones that you're hitting. First of all, your husband is very wise. I'm, I'm glad that he encouraged you. No, do it. They, they want what it is that you have to, to get. Is he a musician as well? Yes, he's actually the director of choral activities at Auburn University. So I get to learn things from him because he's the one who actually studied conduct. That's wonderful. And then um, you talk about service and how the music provides service if somebody isn't touched. I've always felt like music, especially choral music, it has a way to minister without any dogma, that it can just find its way in and touch without any sort of filters or barriers there. I wish I, w I had sung in a, an honor choir with you. I think it would have been just magnificent. Thank you. It would be different. <laughs> I can say. <laughs> it would be wonderful. I mean, you have this, you know, it's, there's a big spirit in there. And, and uh, are you familiar with, with Elizabeth Green? She was a famous conducting teacher in Michigan. And my mentor, Charlene Archibek, um, had studied with her. And Elizabeth coined a term called impulsive will, where when you're at the podium, sort of, what comes from the will of the conductor is sort of what they get the performers to do and how that corresponds to gesture. But I don't think you can have impulsive will unless you have real clarity of purpose, which you have. So that's why I think it would have been amazing to sing in an honor choir and just, you know, have felt that. Well, thank you. I was going to do a pivot here. As we talk about music and its effect in the world and I would love to know your thoughts about where we are as a country and a world surrounding racial inequality and particularly in the choral community. Depending on how you look at it, one can assume that we're in an awful place. But when one understands the power of love and humanity, one could say we're in the most beautiful place. And the reason I say that is because in many ways, many of us are making stronger efforts to understand and appreciate one another. And that's where the beauty comes. I think that when we deceive ourselves to think that we're in a place where we really are not, there's less opportunity for the changes that need to take place. So when I say an awful place, oftentimes the ugly things need to occur 
in order for the beautiful things to be given birth. And we see that even in creation, when a baby comes forth and all of that of having been inside the mother, they have to clean that baby up. That baby does not come out looking like this just clean, adorable, beautiful creature. They take that baby from the mother and they clean that mother up. And then everybody else who comes into the room sees this beautiful baby. But that's not where the baby started. And we also see that in the creation of a home. They first have to dig up the dirt and you see lumber, you see all of this stuff all over the grounds. But in the end, after all of the nails and all of the and you can't even figure out what that house is going to look like when they start. It's just pieces and parts of it. I think where we are, if we do as you do in building the home, if we stick with what we're doing, and that is the hard work of addressing things that need to be addressed, including the past and even the present, something beautiful can grow out of this. But I think we do have to make sure that the house gets built and not leave it half built. And we have, we have to do the work. Yeah. We have to do the work. And, and in many ways, I feel that um, people are listening. And I think the listening needs to be on every side. It's not just one race listening. It's all of us listening. It's not whether we talk about sexes or genders. I just think we're at a place where so many voices are speaking. And if we can take the time to listen to voices outside of ourselves and we change. And that includes me as an African-American. There's so much antagonism. How do I say this? There are so many uh, when you when you're talking about white privilege. Many whites are saying I'm listening. I'm trying to understand and I'm trying to make a difference. To me, there's even a lot of hurt there, because if we as African-Americans don't embrace those who are trying to understand, but just keep walking in the anger, there still does not become unity. So we, we have an opportunity to speak and be heard. But when we are heard, I think we have to respond with some love and compassion such that everybody gets to come together as one. If all we do is be angry, then we don't even get when someone gets our anger and wants to try to do what they can to show that they get it and want us to come together as one. I completely recognize that being a white man in San Francisco Bay Area has inherent privilege dialed in culturally to that, but it also puts me in a position where I can actually do something really positive with that. And so when the opportunity is there, because I know that I'm not the only person who's in my situation who wants to affect change in a way that really does make a difference. So having somebody who can listen and say, yes, this is how you do it, because there's education that needs to happen. And there's no possible way for me as a white middle-aged man to ever 
truly understand what it's like to be in a different skin. I love what you've said because it's spot on. I think so often as African-Americans, we feel that when others are trying to make things better, they don't necessarily find out from us what makes things better. And so when one assumes that they know what will make another race feel better, it can turn out to be a greater problem because in one's desire to do good, one can then do things that actually ostracize the very ones that they want to embrace. So that's why I'm saying I think the conversations must be had. And the other thing that I often share with people is we do all of us have to step out of our comfort zones. And that's hard. And there's a reason why they call it a comfort zone, because it's where we're comfortable. Even the discussions are uncomfortable. But to have the discussions can lead us to a place of comfort. Transformation requires work and it can be painful. But always, I mean, you look at a caterpillar to a butterfly, it's remarkable, but that's not easy. It is interesting when you're talking about we're in a beautiful place and a, and a scary place at the same time. It's like we're on the precipice of real change. But in order to actually make that happen, all the inertia that's around a lack of movement, we really have to push to get it through. And it takes effort. It's not easy. It, we're talking about centuries of programmed behaviors and cultural misunderstandings. And Again, I like what you're saying. When you think about coming out of slavery, there was Reconstruction, where African-Americans were becoming senators, representatives, and then it dies. Then you've got the civil rights movement where all of a sudden we're 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 sitting in the front of the bus at the end of that. Schools are becoming integrated. Then all of a sudden, again, we think we've arrived and then we find ourselves back in the same rut. That's what I mean about us pressing forward to this time, build the whole house or where is the you know, when we when I would run track, there's that streamer that you've got to break through to say you finished. And so often we're on lap number two and we're not going around all four times to actually get to the finish line. And I think right now there seems to be more of a desire for people to say, no, we're going to see this through. We're not going to accomplish a few things here and there. We're going to go on and see it through. And my hope is that that happens here and around the world. And even in, in music, in the choral community, as African-Americans, we're very happy for the inclusion of the African-American spiritual. We're very happy about the inclusion of gospel music. But I think what we challenge to happen is, you know, this this ideal that the African-American spiritual, the fun song ends the concert. And, and that's the place the African-American song and this upbeat African-American song is going to end the concert. Why can't the African-American spiritual begin mm -hmm. the concert? Why well, the gospel up temporal gospel song is going to end the concert? Well, and why can't we do more research to understand, you know, I have people ask me often, you know, can you 
tell me some resources where I can learn more about the African-American spiritual. And, you know, in some ways I take offense to that because during this period back in the early 2000s, everybody was singing Russian songs. They didn't know Russian, <laughs> you know, but they were taking the time to bring in somebody to teach them how to speak the diction for the Russian language. They were going, they were studying the Russian composers, which we do also in classical vocal music. We have to sing the German, the Italian, and we go and we learn that material. There are plenty of books on the African-American spiritual, but everybody pretends they don't know that there are books on this and there are books on gospel music. And then to go and say, well, I don't really know any African-American composers, you know, and there are numerous ones of us who are composing non-idiomatic, meaning whether it's setting texts by African-American composers or doing sacred music that is more of a, you know, in the Latin language. I think we have to want to be inclusive. And like you said, it requires effort to decide or whether it's music by women composers or whether or Hispanic composers, those I think we have to decide it's worth making the effort. Well, what could the effort be? The effort could be that I remember when my husband and I were at Philander Smith College and we performed nonstop. As I said, I think earlier we were the ambassadors for the school. Well, we were invited to do, I think it was Southwestern ACDA. And the program that we did was sacred music of the diaspora. And again, because we were with the United Methodist Church and performed mostly in churches, our music was mostly sacred. And so uh, we were invited by a particular conductor to be part of that particular uh, regional conference. So when we performed, we were invited to do the only African-American group that was invited to perform. And it was because the guy who invited us had seen us perform throughout parts of Little Rock and Texas. So we go and we perform and people are just blown away by this diverse program, starting with the very classical, moving to the spirituals, doing message songs, doing songs, Caribbean, African. And I remember several people came up and just were blown away. And they said, this should have been on the main stage. But because it was black, well, everybody wasn't going to want to see that. And because it wasn't all European influenced, well, the main stage is for those groups that are doing the European influenced typical concert music. And they went and were complaining to the organizers. But that's the sort of the mentality. As a matter of fact, we even submitted my husband several times to perform at the National ACDA. And, you know, having relationships with certain people, they pretty much told us, oh, you're not going to get chosen because of your vocal production. And it was a classical vocal production, but it was, for the most part, generally black voices, which have a certain color. And so, you know, we stopped submitting. But we had something to offer that most people were not going to see. So I want to ask you a question. As we always get near the end of the interview, our podcast is affectionately called No Baton Needed. So I, we always ask our guests their thoughts on the baton. Do you use one? Do you not? And if so, when? No, I don't use one mainly, you know, because I'm not doing a major works with an orchestra. I prefer my hands because I feel like I have more room 
for both subtle and dramatic gestures for the choir. I think the baton is great. I think it's very clear. It's very pointed for clarity and specificity. I think it's great, but I feel like there's a lot in my body and my hands and my fingers that have a message to communicate to the choir that I feel makes me more inclined towards not using a baton. It totally makes sense. What would be the title of your autobiography if you were going to write your autobiography? Just Being. And I would title it that because it's been a wonderful journey to being. So much of life, and I tell my students this all the time, is us trying to compare ourselves to other people and trying to please and trying to reach some standard or mark that has been set for us by other people. And those are the things that lead to depression, lead to a sense of failure. And I am on a journey and it's an enjoyable one and very pleasing and fulfilling in just being who I am. It doesn't mean that who I'm being is who I plan to be in the future. But if I can be at peace with who I am, with all of my shortcomings, all of my faults, and with all the gifts that have been given to me, what a beautiful place it is to be. And I would hope that my biography would be one that would encourage people to embrace their shortcomings and weaknesses, work to improve them before ever they are on their journey to just be. That's beautiful. Well, I hope you write that autobiography. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. So we, we always do a very rapid fire thing at the very end in sort of the tradition of, um, you know, inside the actor studio. So these are just rapid fire questions. Would you rather have a pause button you could use on your life or a rewind button you could use on your life? Pause. Would you rather be stuck on a roller coaster or stuck in an elevator? If the roller coaster's moving, the roller coaster. Would you rather live in a world without email or a world without texting? Email. If you could snap your fingers and transport to another period of time, would you rather travel to the past or to the future? The future. And lastly, would you rather eat something new at every meal for the rest of your life or eat your favorite dish at every meal for the rest of your life? Something new. What is your favorite dish, by the way? Do you have a favorite dish? No, I don't have a favorite dish. It's whatever I'm eating. Yeah. There that you is it's good. Just like, what's your favorite yeah. piece, whatever I'm yeah. working on? Well, Dr. Rosephanie Powell, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this interview with us. This this was powerful. I, I feel like I went to church. I feel very moved and my mind is it feels open. And I was excited to do this, but I found it really affected me in a, in a beautiful way. So it's an honor to finally talk to you. And I'm going to keep championing your works on my little corner of the planet. But thank you. It, it means a lot to us. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. This has been a very interesting interview. Your questions will probably be with me throughout the rest of the day because they were quite poignant and things I like to think about. So thank you so much. And thank you so much for your support of my works. And I'm very, very grateful that you remembered me based on those two works. So thank you. 
Thank you. You have a wonderful day and, and what a blessing it has been to, to talk to you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You're very welcome. If you want to show your support for the No Baton Needed podcast, please make sure to rate and like it on your preferred podcast streaming service. And please be sure to follow The Coral Project on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and SoundCloud. Thank you for listening to The Coral Project's No Baton Needed podcast. See you next month.